of Life Church. We're getting better. I said, it's an exciting time to be a part of Life Church. Amen. 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 It's an exciting time to see what God's doing in this world. And I know, I know. You look at the TV, you look at the news, it's hard to find him. So I would challenge you, turn off the news, turn off the TV, get out in your neighborhood, your community, get to church and find the places in which God, we want to highlight the places in which God is working and moving. And as the old time preacher said, we want to get under the spout where the glory is coming out, right? We want to put ourselves, as the Blackabees taught us a couple of decades ago, to where God is already doing things and put ourselves in that stream. And so we believe that that's kind of the, uh, as we wrap up this three-week uh, beginning of this series, uh, about getting our eyes clear and our minds focused. Uh, and as we go through the lectionary and look at the things that Jesus was doing as he approached uh, and made his way to the ultimate sacrifice on Calvary. So if you'll turn with me to John chapter 2, if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. We're going to put it on the screen. But I want to start by reading the passage from the lectionary today in John chapter 2, and then we'll go back and we'll pick up some high points uh, if we can do that together. So John chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. After this, he, being Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, the temple had several sections, and this was the outer court. And this is the place where Gentiles were allowed to go. The converts to Judaism who might come, they were allowed to be in the outer courts of the temple. Now, once you got into the inner parts, only Jews by blood could be in those parts. But in this particular part, uh, there were colonnades and there, and there was a lot of area where Gentiles could approach and could worship and could, could offer their sacrifices to God. And so that's the place where he is. And he sees all of these things happening. Verse 15, So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. I want to talk today... And I want, to, I, want, I want to take your attention to something that you hear a lot if you spend time around Life Church. You hear us say a lot because we believe this is our, our, our mission. This is really our vision, what we want to see happen. And that, you, you, you've heard it before, some of y'all can quote it with me, is to move people who are far from God toward their highest potential as Christ followers. Some of y'all know that and you've heard that. We say it in Discover Life class, we say it from the pulpit, we say it in one-on-one conversation, in leadership meetings, we say it and we say it and we say it, 
And the reason we say it is because we want you all to, to realize that anybody who walks in here, anybody who, who sits down for a service, anybody who gathers together in a small group, we want you to know what we are all about here at Life Church. But there's another reason we say it. We say it sometimes because we need, as the leadership and as the pastors in this congregation, we need to remind ourselves what this church is all about. And that sounds strange, doesn't it? Because if anybody should know, Pastor Phil should know, Melanie should know, I should know, teachers and volunteers, we should know. But how many know it's hard to stay focused sometimes? So we keep coming back and hammering home. We, we want to see people who are far from God move toward their highest potential as Christ's followers. Let me give you an example when it comes to potential. There's a director in Hollywood, a writer and director by the name of Joss Whedon, and he's, he's uh, directed a lot of TV shows, done a lot of writing. He's one of the more prolific guys in Hollywood. And uh, you, you may know he directed one of the highest grossing films of all time a couple years ago called The Avengers. And Joss Whedon is a, is a very interesting man, and, and my attention was drawn to a biography that it was written about him. He's about my age. And uh, so I, I began reading, and he told his biographer this story, and the biographer said, as the more I wrote about his life and, and what he's done since he's been a writer and a director, he said, the more I kept coming back to this story. And the story that he told, he, he said his wife is from Massachusetts, and so they were up in Massachusetts, and they went to the Barnstable County Fair. And he said, as county fairs do, they had some rides, and there was this one ride in particular, and it would spin you around and push you up at the same time, and then come down and spin. And he said, but the controller, the, the operator of the ride could control what was happening. He said, so this wasn't a ride for, for kids. This was, this was a little scary. He said, so me and my wife get on, and, and we're, we're getting strapped in. And he, look at, so he says, I look, and not too far from me, there's this 10-year-old girl. And she's there with an older friend, and they're getting strapped in. And he said, I could tell. He said, she had that face. You know that face. <laughs> that this might be too much. That this, this just might be the end of her. And, she, and he's very honest. Josh says, that's the kind of face that I wear every day when I come into work. I'm, I'm in over my head. I've been off more than I could chew. And so he, he says, I really wanted to... I wish I could go and, and do something to help her, he said, but that would be kind of creepy, this old man she doesn't know trying to console her or do something. He said, so I was stuck just having to watch. And he said, as the ride got going, he said, as you know, the, her hands are, are white knuckled as she grips and as he begins to control the ride and spin and it's going up and coming back down. He said, and, and you can tell there, there's just this terror in her face. And all the people around her, many of whom have experienced this ride before, are going, wee, and they're just having the time of their lives. And you've got this girl, this 10-year-old girl, who's hanging on for dear life. He said, but as the ride continued, he said, I, I, kept, I was just transfixed. I, I kept watching, and he said, all of a sudden, her face started to change. And her grip starting to loosen, started to loosen a little bit. And he said, I realized I was witnessing at that moment... He said, her face starts to change, and, and she starts to get a little more, more willing to, to let go and to enjoy. And he said, before the ride's over, she's screaming with the rest of them, not out of fear or terror, but out of enjoyment of this ride. And he said, my, he literally says, my mind exploded because I realized I just witnessed 
someone getting stronger. And when he said that, it, it caught my attention. And he said, I, des- I, I decided that everything I do, every story that I tell on the screen, whether it's the small screen or the big screen, he said, everything I do, I want that to be the bottom line. I want to tell stories about people getting stronger. I want my stories to inspire people to get stronger. Now, I wasn't one who watched, but Joss Whedon was the one behind the television series that was this cult phenomenon in the late 90s and into the 2000s called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And vampires aren't my thing, not because I'm scared of them, but because they don't actually exist. But (laughs) apparently the story that he tells is the empowerment of this adolescent girl to face these over-the-top, terrifying things that come into her life and the lives of her friends and to conquer those things. And he said, I was talking to somebody else and I asked, you know, what's behind what you do? And he said, that that gentleman told me, yearning, yearning is behind. And he said, that was such a cool answer because my answer was empowering adolescent girls to face their fears. He said, so I realized I have to go back to the drawing board. And he said, when I, when I got down to it, he said, basically, every story that, I want, that, that I'm telling or trying to tell begins with helplessness and how you can overcome the feeling of helplessness or that feeling of fear or that you're not enough, that you don't measure up and you get stronger because of what's in you. And when you think about it, Potential, the word comes from the Latin word where you also use the word potent. It comes from a root word that means power or strength. And so when we say around here at Life Church that we want to see people move from being far away from God toward their highest potential as Christ followers, we're talking about people getting stronger. There's nothing better. There's nothing more fulfilling. Just like Joss Whedon has found, there's nothing more exciting than seeing somebody get stronger because they realize that God has created them and wants something something wonderful to come from their lives. And so when we think about that, you say, well, what does that have to do with with the lectionary passage today. Well, when we read through the passage and Jesus walks into the temple, he, he, he gets to the outer court and he sees everything that's going on, all the animals that for sale, the, the money that's there to be exchanged, and he sees all those things and he begins to get upset. This is the one time where we point to Jesus and say, see, you can get angry and not sin. And we like to to say, even Jesus got angry to try to justify our own anger. But we have to boil down and say, well, what was he really upset about? What was he really angry about? And he goes in and he sees all of these, these things happening. And all of these things were necessary. Because the Passover feast is people pilgrimaged from hundreds or even thousands of miles to Jerusalem because this was the big celebration. This is the celebration of when God freed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and brought them out. And the Passover was that, that moment when he took... Uh, took and finished the plagues and killed the firstborn sons and, and the firstborn animals of the Egyptians and the Israelites were finally let go. 
And so they were coming to celebrate that, but to come from that far away means that a lot of times you have to travel light, and so you can't bring your own animals. You, you don't have the right currency because that's not what is accepted where you are, and so there's a need to exchange your money for the currency of the temple, and there's a need to purchase the animals that you couldn't bring with you to sacrifice. And all of those things were necessary. All of those things were required, if you will. By the law, by the Torah, by the teachings. But how many know that everything that's necessary isn't always necessarily right? And so Jesus goes in and he sees all this happening. And he has has something well up within him. In fact, the disciples, when they see this happen... They don't know any better than we would have at that time because all of that extra, those last several verses we read, they wrote that and said those things and realized those things after Jesus had died and after he had resurrected. So at the time, what was going through their head, they say, oh, I've got it. Psalm 69. The psalmist says, zeal for your house has consumed me. David's writing. And the, the psalm, I challenge you to read it sometime, Psalm 69. He's upset. It's a psalm where he's just agonizing and crying out to God because he says, all these people around me, they poke fun at me. They, they point their fingers at me and, and they, they make fun because I have this zeal that consumes me. I, I desire to be at the temple because David had this belief that the temple, that the, the tabernacle at that time, the temple that he was preparing to allow his son Solomon to build, that that place is the concentrated presence of the creator of the universe. God dwells in that place. And I have this, this passion and this desire to be wherever it is I know is the most concentrated presence of God. You can feel him other places, you can know him other places, but when you come to to that place, inside of which dwells the Ark of the Covenant, inside of the Holy of Holies, inside of the holy place, when you come to that place, it's concentrated. It's like taking the juice can out of the freezer and popping it and not even adding water. It's the strongest power and presence of God. Right there. And David, David goes so far as, I, I think he, he says, they want to know what's wrong with me, but I want to know what's wrong with them because why would you not want to get where the presence of God is? Why would you not want to be in that concentrated place? Zeal for your house consumes me and, and everybody's making fun of me. And so the disciples see Jesus as he starts to throw tables over and as he starts to, to push and kick sheep and goats uh, out and, and throws open the, the cages for the birds to fly away and, and there's chaos in the temple and the disciples sit and say, mm, yeah, like David, zeal for your house will consume me. But here's what the disciples missed. The disciples didn't realize that David, David somehow in, 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 all of his, in all of his desire to know God. You know, God even said, David, 
David's chasing after my own heart. And all of that desire, David, even in his repentance psalm, after the whole Bathsheba ordeal and Uriah is dead, and when Nathan confronts him, we have that Psalm 51 where David just pours out his heart. And we a lot of times focus on the first several verses of that psalm. But as you read on down farther, you read where David says, sacrifices and burnt offerings you don't desire, you don't require, you don't, you don't really want those things. You say, well, wait a minute, the Torah tells us in, in very, in, in very, I, we just finished Leviticus, if you're on the one-year Bible tour with us, and we just got through Leviticus, and you talk about hard stuff. You talk about hard reading, but, but in there, it's all lined out. This is what you have to do. If somebody does this, then they have to make this atonement. They have to bring this animal. They have to do it this way, and you have to put the blood here and there. And There's all of these requirements. And David says, David has the gall to say, living under that covenant, you don't really desire sacrifices and burnt offerings. He said, if that's what you wanted at this moment, when, when I've realized my sin against you, if that's what you wanted, I would bring it. He said, but here's the sacrifice I bring. I think it's verse 17 in Psalm 51. He says, here's the sacrifice I bring. A broken spirit. David says this. A broken and, and contrite heart. Or one translation says, a broken and bruised heart. Or I thought when I heard that, a black and blue, like we heard last week, heart. He says, God, you won't despise that. So there's this requirement for sacrifices, and yet David tells us that's not really the requirement. Well, I'm confused because you're telling me it's required, but David, this guy that you say you really, really like God, he says it's not required. But it's not just David. As you get farther and farther along in the Old Testament, you realize God's trying. He's trying so hard to say that, yes, I established a sacrificial system, but it wasn't really what I wanted. What I really want, and you read through the prophets, and I want to give you one example. We're going to throw it up on on the slide, but I want to give you one example from the prophet Micah. But it's not just Micah. It's Jeremiah. It's Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58. I mean, read the whole chapter, and you'll see time and time again, God's just pleading with his people. But look at Micah chapter 6. Micah's Micah's speaking for the people of Israel that are desiring that presence of God. And this is what Micah says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Because that's what the Torah tells me to do. So is, is that how I'm supposed to approach God? Go to the next slide. All right, Micah says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Micah's saying, at what point in time can we appease the anger of this God that we think is is so angry and so upset with us? How are we going to get him to to relent on his anger? Is is it going to take thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? At what point in time? And then he says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body... For the sin of my soul. Is there really some physical object that I can offer that makes up for the sin of my soul? Go to the next slide. And then Micah says this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. It's it's as if God's pleading. and, And some of you will be able to relate to this. 
you parents out there, you parents, you know how it is when you when your child has has done it and done it and done it and done it, and you're you're at you're at the end, and, and you're just pleading. Why? Just for for me this week it happened where I, Friday night I looked at Cayman and I said that's it, and I gave him a choice of his punishment. And just as an aside here, children these days, he chose uh, the thing that would not allow him to be removed from his electronic objects. One of the choices was you lose your, your, your access, your iPod, your Kindle, whatever, for two days. He said, no, do whatever you have to do, <laughs> but don't take my iPod away. But it's like, we've addressed that. He said, oh, I knew it when I did it. I said, no, you knew it when I looked at you. After you did it. Oh, I knew it. He told his grandma last night. I knew it when I did it. But that, that, that thing, it's not the first violation. It's not to say, it's not the twelfth violation. It's something over and over and over again. And it's as the prophets are speaking God's word saying... Why can't, why can't you see? Why can't you understand? Where did it start? It started all the way back, I think, with Cain. Where Cain brought an offering and God says, you haven't done right. You're not living right. I can't accept an offering when you're not doing right. If you do right, I'll accept your offering. And Micah says this, he's shown you, old man. Man, that's me with my son. Come on, man. Why don't you get this? He's shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require? So Micah says, in case you don't know, let me lay it out for you again. What does the Lord require of you? It's not thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive wood. It's not your firstborn sacrificed on an altar. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Are Are you kidding me? Micah, really? That's, that's what you're boiling it down to? But what about all of this other stuff? So you can see when Jesus walks in, there's been years and years and even century after century where all of these rules and regulations have piled up. So all of these things are seen by everybody who's going in as a necessary requirement to worship God. All of these things that are, that are crowding out the outer court and in, in one author, Philip Yancey, brings to our attention that the outer court, because it's the only place the Gentiles go, could it be that Jesus is getting really upset because they're crowding out and making less and less room for Gentiles to come in to worship the true God? Forgetting all along that Abraham was promised you will be a, a blessing to all nations. So don't think it wasn't intentional at all that the more tables that are set up and the more animals that are brought in means the less Gentiles that can come. And they saw that as a feather in their cap. They saw that as something good and positive. But Jesus walks in. What's he thinking? Well, there's there's not just one theory about it, but I think the more we look into it, the more we study, Jesus is saying, you're making it harder and harder for people to get in and focus on what they're supposed to focus on when they come to this place. That the creator of God has established, the creator God, the creator of all humans has established a place where his presence dwells and where you can worship him. 
And you're doing everything you can to distract. And you're even setting up ways, weighting your scales. You're even selling doves, but then they realize it's not the right dove. And so I have to go back and now the price is higher. And you're taking advantage of people in all kinds of ways. And Jesus looks around and he says, how dare you turn this place? How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke set this up. The Synoptic Gospel set this up as the moment in which Jesus is finally, uh, the, the, the religious leaders decide this is the time where we can't, we can't deal with this guy anymore. We have, to, we have to kill him. But John puts it in the second chapter of his book, in essence saying, I want everything else I'm going to tell you about Jesus to be set up by this understanding that he came to upset and overturn the systems the systems that were taking advantage of people. And when he walks in there and he, and he creates this chaotic scene, it's as if Jesus is saying, I want a system in which people have access to God's presence. I want a, I want a system in which people, I want a, a a style, a, a culture created where people can move into God's presence. Access Him wherever they are and they can get stronger because of that connection. I want to see people get stronger. He looks at the Pharisees one time when he's teaching. He said, not only do you not make it in, but you keep others out. And that to Jesus, I think, is is. As just as great, maybe even greater of a sin. It's one thing if you choose not to do this, if you choose not to approach God, if you choose not to, to fall on His grace and His mercy, but to, to set up a system which keeps other people out. Now, now you've crossed the line to where Jesus really gets mad. So, where does that leave us today? I, I, I want to give you one more example. We're not going to shoot this on the slides, but I want to give you one more example where Jesus, and this is going to challenge maybe something, and something for me when, when I came across this and began looking into it a few years ago, it, it challenged some deeply held beliefs that I had had for a while. But in Mark chapter 12, and this was in our reading in the one year Bible, this was in our reading Friday, but. In Mark chapter 12, verse 38, it says, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. We're used to him saying stuff like that, right? You read, you see it all the time through the Gospels. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. And we're, used, we're used to hearing that stuff about him. But then he says this, and it's something that he adds that sometimes he doesn't always say, but he adds it, and I think there's a reason that Mark puts it in there. He says, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. So they set themselves up as these wonderful, highly religious people. He said, but in their dealings on the side, they're trying to take advantage of widows. Jesus says, such men will be punished most severely. Jesus said, that that really ticks me off. Now watch, this is, this is what you'll say. You may, you may or may not have read that, but this is where you'll say, oh, I've, I've heard this story. Listen to this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their t- money into the temple treasury. So it's offering time. And the system that they've created, you want to be seen giving your offerings. 
And so, as it was done many times when I, you, when I was growing up, we would march around to the offering plate. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, but Jesus is watching, and so it's very obvious to him. It says, many rich people threw in large amounts. So it's obvious that they're making a show of it. And so he sees a lot of these guys coming around, and the religious leaders, people that are, have clout in that day, they're coming around and they're putting in large amounts. But, verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. If you grew up in the King James Version, it was two mites. She threw in two mites, worth only a fraction of a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, the only way I ever heard that story taught when I was growing up in Sunday school was that Jesus was honoring the sacrificial giving of this lady. And in this paradoxical way, he is. He is doing that. Because for her to come and to give like she is, like she does, to put in just about all she has, and it's so little anyway, but to be willing to do that in this paradoxical way, she is getting stronger. But Jesus doesn't say blessings to her, how wonderful it is. Jesus points it out. And leaves it at that. Except, if you get rid of the chapter and the verse structure, if you keep reading into what we have as Mark 13, the story goes on because they leave the temple. And catch this. Jesus is leaving the temple and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones. What magnificent buildings. Jesus said, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Jesus says there's, God help us, the system, this religious system that's been created. And watch the people come around and give their offerings. And so many of these people have, have so much and they give a part of that and it doesn't really hurt them and it doesn't really take them out. But here comes a widow. And she hardly has anything. But she needs, she needs to, to know God and she desires to please God. And so out of that, just out of obedience, she's putting in just about everything she has. And when you add it up, it's not that much. But she's given just about all she has in this state of poverty to support this religious system that Jesus says in a couple more verses, it's all going to crumble. The disciples say, look at this temple. Look at everything that is around us, everything that's been built. Remember, the Pharisees said, 46 years this temple's been built. It had to be astounding. It may not have held up against Solomon's temple, but that's a thousand years ago. Look at this this." This complex, Herod has subsidized the building of this temple. And is it not amazing, the disciples say. 
And boy, isn't a good thing that 2,000 years later, we're not impressed by big buildings and, and great structures and wealth and prestige. Isn't it a good thing that we don't run after those things? But back then, oh man, they just really liked that. Fame and fortune just really had a hold on them back then. So glad we've gotten past that. But Jesus says, you see all this stuff? It's so magnificent. It'll be destroyed and one stone won't be left on another. That's how, that's how it will come to ruins. And a widow just walked by and put just about every last penny she had to support this system that's going to be destroyed because we've gotten so far off track. And I can see Jesus with, with this, this zeal inside of him, but it's not a zeal for this temple, this edifice, this complex. It's this zeal to know the true and living God, to experience his presence. And that's why he says, you tear down this temple and I'll build it back in three days. And they say, you're nuts. And the disciples realize after the resurrection, he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body. And I want to challenge you today that for Jesus, uh, he had to be sure to keep his eyes focused. Clear eyes on the path. Clear eyes. We've already seen him push aside the disciples because they have different plans. We've already seen him in the desert push aside Satan because Satan wants to get him off track. But sometimes it's not enough to push off Satan. and It's not enough to push off some of your closest friends. Sometimes you have to just take account and say, you know what? This system, this 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 culture that we've created, and God help us, it's it's so hard to do in the Bible Belt. But this system that lives around us that says, if you just do this and this and this, you'll be okay. Check a box, uh, check off a, a list of do's and don'ts, and you'll be okay. And and so many denominations have decided, here's our list, and here's our list, and Jesus walks in and he just overturns all of that. And he says, uh, John essentially is saying, everything else you read about Jesus, you need to understand his intentions uh, were to turn people from the temple being a building to the temple being his body. Because he is the exact representation of the living God. And if you want to know what Jesus is about, I hope you do. You came to church this morning. You want to know Jesus, what really gets him going? I'm telling you, on a magnified scale compared to Joss Whedon or even compared to us here at Life Church, Jesus is about people getting stronger. Oh, he just walks around. He sees somebody sitting beside the water waiting for, for this, this mystical, unpredictable moving of the waters. And he looks at the guy and he says, do you want to get well? The capability, the power is here. Remember, potential is, is this latent possibility within us, but science tells us that potential energy to change to kinetic energy, a force has to act on it. Jesus essentially goes by and says, do you want to move? Do you want to get well? If so, just get up and walk. Because the power, the, the transformation exists right now. Why? Not because of a temple and not because of some unpredictable moving of the waters, but because Jesus is here and present and real among us. And that's where I want to go old school Pentecostal and start stomping my foot because it's so powerful to realize that God 
takes and says, all right, no longer will my presence dwell in an in a inside chamber of a temple. You got that wrong, so I'm going to put my presence inside a, a human being. I'm going to show up in the flesh. John says, he tabernacled among us. I'm going to put my presence inside a man, but then that man will be bruised and beaten, and he will be bled out on Calvary. And as he bleeds out, uh, the curtain will be torn and his body will be torn because access to the presence of God is available for every single person. And that's how we get stronger. That's how we move toward God. That's how we push in and say, God, all I have is a broken heart to offer you. But that's what you really want. I wonder if we could stand right now. I want to challenge you. Is, is that what you think of when you think of Jesus Christ being your Savior, your Master, your Lord? He's, he's your biggest fan, but He's not just your biggest fan. He's, he's the one that knows. At Life Church, we make, we make a lot of guesses, and a lot of times God helps us, and we do pretty good. But when it comes down to it, we, we can't really know the potential that's within you. We can give you a test and, and we, can, we can pray with you and we can challenge you in messages. But when it comes down to it, only God really knows the potential. But God, even more than us in the leadership here, even more than those on the dream team, even more than the person sitting on either side of you, God wants to see you get strong. God wants to see you reach your highest potential because he knows that that's the only true way that you become fulfilled in your life. Your fulfillment is not about a career. It's not about uh, a family. It's not about uh, success and wealth and, and, and possessions. Your fulfillment is only realized as God's potential within you, those gifts and talents that he placed within you come forth. He calls them forth. But he doesn't demand it. He just says, are you willing to come? What if we could bow our heads for just